Well, how many of you um, like to play board games? Would you just kind of hold your hand up, whether it be, you know, it could be all number of board games. The one that Julie and I like the most is really not a hard game. It's called Sequence. Some of you played that? The little blue and red or green round tokens you kind of move based on the card you draw. Uh, I don't really play Sequence. I watch Julie beat me at Sequence. That's kind of how that goes in our home. I get a couple of jacks here and there and can get lucky and can put one as a wild, but for the most part, whenever we play, it's just like, okay, beat up on Todd Knight. And, uh, but we like to play board games. And so I bring that to your attention because it was board games that actually began the phrase, turning the tables. You've heard that phrase, right? We've used it, in fact, to say, well, I'm going to turn the tables or the tables were turned. And I'm saying that, some of you are thinking about the office episode, right? I can imagine you probably are, right? Um, but that, that phrase comes actually from about the 17th century, and it came to us because of actual board games in which people would, to reverse their positions, actually physically go and turn the table and take the other person's place or position to try to reverse the way the game was going. And so over down through the centuries, it's become known as turning the tables. It indicates when there's been a reversal of positions. In the financial world, it'd be a reversal of fortunes. Sometimes the tables turn. And so what we find is in Mark chapter 10, a turning of the tables begins in a very visible, clear way. We're going to see for the next several weeks, in fact, multiple episodes in which the tables are turning. Christ intentionally, emphatically reverses positions and shows people what the kingdom really is like and what the gospel requires and what it demands and what it results in and what he really came to do as opposed to what they thought he was going to do. So we're going to look at some episodes of the next three weeks that involve the turning of the tables. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10 with the first one of these that begins in verse 46. Let me read for you this first snapshot. It goes to about verse 52. And then I'll read the one in chapter 11. I'll take a few questions today. So if you need the number for questions It'll be on the screen behind me. You can text the word question to that number, and then it'll prompt you how to fill in your question, and then we'll get it in the back, and we'll take maybe one or two of those today to try to help us understand these two snapshots. We'll draw some observations and lead us hopefully to one big idea before we're done, okay? lot to do, a little bit of time to do it, so let's get started. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. The Bible says they came to Jericho, speaking of Christ and his disciples. They're on their way, of course, to Jerusalem, right? And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, uh, that's who they were leaving with, then Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Well, you circle the word by and underline the phrase by the roadside. I'll bring it to your attention in a minute. But as they're leaving Jericho, based on Mark's account, Bartimaeus is on the side of the road, indicating a a cast-out position. He's not considered an insider, whether it's in the disciples or society. He's on the side of the road. He's holding out his hands. He's got the bucket that says, we'll work for food or or just give me some money. He's doing whatever he can, alms. In this culture, it would have been his cloak that was kind of spread out in front of him. And folks would drop off whatever they could afford to help him. He's blind. He's a beggar. And he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming by, verse 47 says. So he begins to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. A clear indication that he understood who Jesus was. Now, Bartimaeus was a Jew, 
And he must have either been trained or heard or knew something about Jesus over these past three years, perhaps more, we're not sure. Mark does not tell us how he knew this, but there is a recognition that Christ is from the line of David, the tribe of Judah. He's the one coming to fulfill all of God's promises and restore the kingdom. And he calls him son of David. You're the one we've been waiting on. This is a messianic title. So somewhere in this, Bartimaeus, watch this phrase, he gets Jesus. It's like, I know who you are, and I believe you are who you are, and so he calls out, have mercy on me. It's a very personal title. It's a very personal exclamation. The crowd, however, rebukes him and says, be quiet, verse 48 says, but he cries out all the more, and he repeats himself, son of David, have mercy on me. I love the guy's determination, don't you? I want to get to Jesus. Well, Jesus recognizes this and understands it, and he calls him. He actually tells the crowd, in fact, the calling. And so they call the blind man, and they say to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Isn't that good news? If you're blind and Jesus is passing by and he calls you, you've got to just be like uh, really stoked for that, right? Like, man, I've been crying out for him. He heard me. He's calling for me. And we see this in verse 50, throwing off his cloak which is probably something, a large kind of piece of material that he used to wrap around himself and also to, to hold the alms that folks were giving, the different pieces of money. It says he threw it off, he sprang up, and he came to Jesus. And I love the way Mark uses his verbs, don't you, throughout this book. He sprang up. I mean, there's no sense that he hesitated, that he's waiting, or that he's questioning or, like, evaluating. He just, man, if Jesus is calling, I'm going. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Which, by the way, is the same question that Jesus asked the sons of Zebedee, remember? Now, their request was different. They wanted something high and mighty for their own benefit. This blind beggar just wants an ordinary, uh, can I just see again? It's a really different request, but Christ asked the same question. Look how the blind man does respond, verse 51. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Let me just say this to you about the word rabbi. You won't find this in your English translation, and, and so I want to kind of give this to you. This is a rare use of the word rabboni. So this just translates it rabbi, which is a good translation, but I don't think in the New Testament rabboni was ever used to address someone that the person didn't know was divinity. So it's kind of hard to grasp that, but typically it'll be just a shorter form of rabbi in the Greek language. Here, it's an intensive, kind of longer fashion. Indicating was Bartimaeus knew something about Jesus, that he was, of the son of, he was the son of David. He was God's fulfillment of all the Messianic promises. He says, Master, Rabboni, the one from God, he says, let me recover my sight. He's just asking for an ordinary... Um, like, can I just see again? Nothing extraordinary. Like, I don't want seats in the cabinet of vice president, you know, secretary of state, like James and John asked. Could I just see again? The indication is that perhaps he was once able to see and in some way he lost his sight. He's asking Jesus, could you help me see again? And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And the word here for made you well is not the typical word for healed. It's actually the root word from where we get our word salvation. It's the word sozo. Now, those, how they say those words and what they are doesn't matter to you. I'm just telling you that this is not always used in regards to healings. And what Christ is saying and what Mark is recording 
is that more happened here than just a blind man getting a sight. This man was born again. And the faith, in the sense that it says made him whole, in other words, that's the avenue, the means by which Jesus exercised his power and healed this man in response to this man's faith. And this man's faith was how he responded to Jesus. The crowds weren't going to get in his way. They couldn't keep him away. He made his way. He responded to Christ. The Bible says that immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him, what's the last three words, on the way. And do you recall the last time you circled a phrase? Was it verse um, 46? He was sitting where? By the roadside, correct? Now he's following on the road. The word way there is the same as the word road. You see where he's moved? You see his progression? He was the outcast on the outside. He was the guy on the side of the road, but he meets Christ. He's now on the road. He's following. He's in the way of the disciples. He's now in the inside community. And so in in every single sense of, of this text, you find incredible life transformation happening here. I think uh, for all of his shortcomings regarding his eyesight, Bartimaeus had extremely good insight, didn't he? I would say to you that Bartimaeus represents for us the symbolic snapshot of biblical conversion. This is what this, this simple narrative shows us. It's just kind of a snapshot of what it looks like for someone to genuinely follow Christ. He hears Jesus calling, and through faith in Jesus, he responds personally, and he follows wholly. That's what biblical conversion is. And Bartimaeus is not just a physical picture of a blind man gaining his sight back, but it's also a spiritual picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So that's a snapshot one. Hold that in this hand. Let's move to chapter 11. Let's get a look at snapshot two, can we? This is not about an individual, but more about some crowds. Let's begin in verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, he's speaking there of the disciples and probably, I would say, Bartimaeus as well and those who were on the way. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and we don't know who it was. And he says to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord is need of it, and he will send it back here immediately. And so they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. You can imagine the thing, hey, this is coming true. Just what he said is happening. I'd love to have been there, wouldn't you? And so they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And so they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, I want to push pause there and ask you a question. Why are there so many of these details prior to what we know as the triumphal entry. I mean, it seems like a lot of unnecessary details, like go to the city. If you see someone who doesn't want you to have the colt, don't worry about it, tell them this, they'll let you have it, find it. Like, why does Mark go to that great length to give us these details? Here's what I think is going on. Mark is making sure we know that Jesus Christ is not a victim. He didn't happen to upon Jerusalem and like, oh, there's a mob trying to arrest me and they're gonna kill me. Oh my goodness, I wasn't planning on this. He's actually showing us that this is all arranged. You could use the word orchestrated. This is divinely ordained by God, the Son of God. He's entering Jerusalem. He's making his procession intentional. He's no victim here. 
He's the intentional, eternal sacrifice. You see this happening? So Mark's making it clear. Jesus Christ is sovereignly in control of these details. He knows why he's going to Jerusalem, and he's there on purpose. So as it comes into the city, verse 8 continues the story. It says that many spread their cloaks on the road. Now notice, this is the many compared to the 12 or the few that were with him on the road probably including Bartimaeus, but now others have joined in. So it seems like the crowd grew as Christ kind of neared the city and the gates. He would have been here on the eastern side. He's coming in on a donkey. And what I think is happening is this. As the Jews who were on their messianic pilgrimage were watching this, they're thinking, oh, here's another person on his pilgrimage. But it had, it had um, the sense of Zechariah 9 all about it, in which we have the prophecy of the Messiah riding on a colt. And I think some of the Jews in that vicinity of those gates in that city probably had known about Zechariah and had been told and read those prophecies. And so they began to see, oh, this looks like it could be something related to the, to the coming one. And so they kind of jump on board this potential celebration. I don't think they're actually interested in following Jesus, but they're more curious about, hey, this guy's pilgrimage? It looks a lot like Zechariah. Maybe we should just kind of cheer for this guy. I think they're more about the moment and the enthusiasm than they are really who he actually is. Because you see that in their praises, look at verse 9. They spread their cloaks on the road, they spread leafy branches, and those that went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David and Hosanna in the highest. It sounds like, oh, they're on board. I don't know that they make a personal ascription here to Christ though. And I may be picking the text apart a little bit. So we may differ here, and if we do, we can still love each other, right? I find if you just look at the context as a whole, what you find is possibly people gathering as the cult's nearing the city, and they're, they're seeing some Zechariah 9 details unfold. And they're like, hey, I want to cheer for that. I'm a Jew. We want a deliverer. And so they shout, Hosanna. And admittedly, other disciples join in who are on the road and are committed. They're just kind of part of the crowd. But the majority of the crowd are probably just shouting, save us now. That's what Hosanna means. Hosanna means save us now. And so they're asking for relief from the Romans. Hey, you're coming in on the eastern gate. This is your pilgrimage. You look like you might have some, some things about Zechariah 9 about you. Could you just go ahead and, and make this happen? Deliver us. Save us now. Bring in the, the kingdom of our father David. So I think it lacks a little bit of the personal aspect that Bartimaeus had, who explicitly said, Jesus, son of David. This is more of a general like, hey, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. If that's you, awesome. Go for it. Save us now. That's kind of how I read this. I'm not far off. This is the general thought of most commentators. To be intellectually honest with you, however, there are a couple, I found one for sure, who see this not in that way. So I would encourage you to study, dissect, form a, a solid opinion. I tend to see it as admirers who join the disciples as they're coming to Jerusalem and just kind of get caught in the fanfare because, watch this, as soon as they're shouting these phrases and these praises, he doesn't stop once he enters the gate. He doesn't stop at Jerusalem. He continues. Look at verse 11. He entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. You catch that? So let me ask you a question. Was Jesus' ultimate destination the city or the temple? It was the temple. And at this point, we have no record the crowd stayed with him. It appears in verse 11 that really it was Jesus and just those 12, maybe a few others, 
He went to the temple, looked around. It was late, and so he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Here's what I think the context would show us. Christ coming into Jerusalem. Other folks watching who were there as well as crowded in the city. They kind of jump on board the, the pilgrimage of this guy thinking he may have something to do with our deliverance. But as soon as he goes towards the temple, they're like, okay, see you later. Have a good visit. They're just kind of waiting there maybe for the next person. That's kind of how I see this happening. It's really a symbolic picture of the cultural Christian who cheers for Jesus. They applaud Jesus. They seem initially interested due to fanfare, but they make no real commitment to following Jesus all the way to the cross. They're just there when it's, when it's kind of easy. Lay some branches down, sing some praise songs, clap for him. But we don't want to make your way to the temple. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was Jesus going to the temple? Why was that his, in my opinion, his ultimate destination, at least on this right here, this trip? You could say to cleanse it because that's what happens next and you'd be right. But I think there's an underlying um, reason we'll call it. Watch this. Where is the place of sacrifice? The temple. And who is the eternal once and for all sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world? Jesus. Jesus was going to the temple to show himself to be the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And so that stands in stark contrast to coming in the gates to the, to the shouts of those who loved him because they thought he would deliver them from the Romans. See the difference here? The crowd's like, hey, could you save us now from all the Roman oppression? He's saying, no, my eyes are in the temple because I want to save you from, from something far worse, and that is your sins. And so his eyes are on the temple, the place of sacrifice. Now we know ultimately that's not where he died. He was arrested, falsely tried, and crucified outside the city. But when he died and said it's finished, what was torn in two? The temple curtain which separated man from God. And so I, I think it's very safe to say textually, the temple was Christ's aim to, re, to replace those uh, sacrificial systems with his once-for-all sacrifice, as Hebrews calls it, and to be the eternal atonement needed for the sins of many. So I, I find then that some interesting pictures, that Christ wasn't just coming into Jerusalem to gather a fanfare of crowds, he was coming to see who would follow him all the way to his suffering. And so what we have here is a real comparison, don't we? A real contrast. In chapter 10, here's a blind man who knows exactly who Jesus is, confesses it personally, follows him wholly, goes from the outside to the inside, stays true on the road following Christ. In contrast to a few, we use maybe we should say the word many, who just happen to see Christ coming in the city, join in the the, the quick, you know, praise, but as soon as he leaves, they let him leave. It's a contrast between, watch this, a seeing crowd of people, we'll call them activists even, and a blind beggar. And watch some of the things about this contrast. I'll show you a chart behind me. This might kind of simplify it for you. The beggar came blind. The activists, they came seeing, didn't they? The beggar just wanted his sight. I think the activists wanted might. Hey, could you deliver us from the Romans? Could you give us some reprieve? The beggar, he showed faith. I think the activists were simply involved in popularity. It was a, a moment of Christ's fame, at least for the, for the, for the moment. You know? He was kind of the, the hot item at the time. The beggar, 
He ended up being a follower. The activists proved themselves to really just be fans for the most part. And what I think is the turning of the tables is the blind beggar actually left seeing and the seeing activist actually left blind. They missed who Jesus actually was. So here he turns the tables, doesn't he? And shows that it's really about faith restoring the kind of sight that matters most. Not just asking for some quick physical deliverance from something that's oppressing you. Christ has come to deliver us from our, our worst situation, which is the, our sin. And he did that by sacrificing himself on the cross. So two interesting comparisons, one interesting comparison here between the beggar and the crowd and the turning of the tables in both instances. A couple of observations we can make from this. Let me just show you these briefly. First of all, we've got to be careful not to mistake enthusiasm for faith. And there is a difference, right? The difference is endurance. Will you say the word endurance with me? Yeah, it's not our favorite word, is it? But can I say to you, with as much transparency and accuracy and boldness as I can muster in this moment, endurance is the mark of genuine believers. There's something about long-term obedience and following that that marks out who really belongs to Christ. And you often don't know that in the first hour, month, or year. And what does it take to prove someone's genuineness and endurance? It takes testing. It takes a trial. It takes having to pay a price for your faith. It's revealed when it cost you something. So I want to warn us that we don't want to be part of the crowd and the admirers, the enthusiastic people. Let's be in the follower group that went all the way to the place of sacrifice. And even when it got costly, yes, there were moments they dipped. You find God's power pulling those 12 disciples and others all the way to Pentecost, don't you? By the way, we're just a few months from Pentecost. You find that God's power was faithful to keep those believers, those genuinely converted believers, solidly on their faith. Long-term, enduring obedience. I think about Matthew 13 when I consider this first observation. Remember the four soils? Which one actually bore fruit? Just the final soil, correct? The others were initially looked promising. Man, this is going to grow! But as time would reveal, none of those seeds took root. They were choked out by persecution, riches, struggles, time. And so it just sometimes the seed didn't grow. The only, the only soil that produced fruit is the one that, from Christ's teaching, is the one that actually had the seed. So it says to us, seed. So it says to us this. If there's no fruit over the long haul, there's been no seed planted. Which is why I say to you, don't mistake enthusiasm for faith. The difference is endurance. Also, I'd warn you not to mistake fans for followers. Fans are enthusiastic, but followers exhibit faith. Bartimaeus, even Christ said, your faith has made you whole, made you well. But the folks on the road that were just cheering when he came in the city and didn't follow all the way to the place of sacrifice, yeah, they're just fans. 
And the difference between a fan and a follower is the word obedience. You put these two together, you find that enduring obedience really marks genuinely converted disciples. Those are the ones who are on the road. Reminds me of 1 John. We know we belong to God when we keep his commandments. We love people. We obey the Lord. These are, these are uh, fundamental earmarks of genuine believers. And I think that point is contrasted in this comparison between a blind beggar, with personal faith who responded and followed, and then a crowd who just joined in some temporary you know, uh, pep rally and then let him pass on by. Now, I hope you're thinking, which one am I in? Am I a true follower, known for enduring obedience, or am I just an uh, in-the-moment fan? I, I can applaud and cheer when it's easy, but when it costs me something, I run and hide. hope you're thinking that way. While you're thinking, let me see if there's any questions that came in. One, one came in earlier. We already posted it in here, so I want to answer this question, then we'll take one more if they came in. Here's a question someone asked I thought was pretty insightful. They wanted to know if Bartimaeus was part of the crowd as well. In other words, they're asking, okay, so the crowd's not the people you want to be in, but wasn't Bartimaeus in there? Did he fall away? And why is he considered kind of on the, on the right side, but wasn't he in the crowd cheering and saying Hosanna? Well, in the crowd, there were a number of disciples who were legitimate. The 12 were in there plus Bartimaeus. But I think the majority of the crowd still were those admirers who stopped short of the place of sacrifice, who didn't continue on with Jesus, just kind of joined in when the fanfare kind of popped up. But here's why I would say to you Bartimaeus remained faithful as a follower. It's found in the fact that his name is mentioned in this narrative. Did you know that this is the only healing in the synoptics where there's a personal name mentioned? In fact, I'll go even one step deeper. We have not only Bartimaeus' name, we have his father's name. Now, here's how I think this works. And there's a little bit of opinion here, so I want to share this with you. I think Mark and the disciples who were around him, and Mark got a lot of his accounts from Peter, by the way, firsthand. I think the reason they named him, they called his name out, and they gave his father's name, is because he was known to that Christian community. I think that over a period of months, he began to follow Christ, he began to make friends with folks in the community. They began to be his brothers and sisters. In fact, I think he was one of those ones probably uh, at Pentecost. He became known. He became part of that first church that Acts 2 talks about. It's only a few months from this day. This is within a week of the, of the crucifixion. Then there's the resurrection. Then there's uh, 40 days of, of visible proof from the resurrection. Then 10 days till Pentecost. So you're within months of the beginning of the church. My opinion, and this is pretty strong, I think it's rooted pretty biblically, is that Bartimaeus was so known that when Mark went to record the gospel accounts, when he came to this story, he's like, yeah, we know Bartimaeus. We know Bartimaeus' dad. They're in our church, man. They're legit. They're real. And so he puts his name in there. These are like tags. These are like moments when you see, wow, this person was, was following long term. That's why I think he was part of the crowd, but he stayed true all the way to and through the cross. Ryan, did we get any more questions at all? Okay, no more turned in. If you have some, feel free to text them, that number, and we'll get to them in the week. I do have a question that I want to ask all of us, though, that I've been mulling over as well in light of this text. I wasn't sure how to text it in while I'm preaching, so I'm going to ask it to you verbally, okay? You know, when you, when you think about this comparison and you look at the warnings, 
you can almost get the sense that, well, Todd, you're, you're kind of calling us to like some, you know, sucking a lemon, kind of sour disposition, like no one can clap for Jesus, no one can be joyful, like you kind of want us to drag our bottom lip and just like, hey, I'm following Jesus, don't bother me, I'll get there, I'm going to pay the price, you know, kind of like this drudgery. Because I began to sense that, like as I was studying through this and noticing the contrast and just praying through it, I was like, you know, well, I had the, well, I give the impression that, hey, don't be a fan. There's too much joy in that. You know, don't cheer for Jesus. And so I kind of started thinking, that's not what I want to communicate. At the same time, I don't want to just give half the story that, hey, come to Jesus and all's great forever and not tell you that there's actually suffering and consequences and a cost to it. So I thought, how can I, you know, what's going on with this? I want to, I began to ask myself, what is the issue at stake here? I think what you have to ask yourself is this. When you look at enduring obedience, if you come to Christ only for your sake, if it's only your joy that you're after, I think that is more of a crowd fanfare mentality. It's much like the rich young ruler. Do you recall him a few chapters back? Hey, I want eternal life. What can I do next? I've been a really good boy my whole life. And then Jesus says, "Once you sell everything you have and make me your highest treasure, even though you'll lose everything you have on earth. And he, what did he do? He walked away sad because he didn't get what he wanted. He was really after his own joy, wasn't he? I think there's some of that even in James and John. Hey, give us the top two seats so, man, we can be powerful. And what did Jesus say? You're not going to lead like the Gentiles. In other words, there's a, there's a turning of the tables here. We don't find our joy in the in the things that we have. We don't find our, our power and position. We find it when we, when we root ourselves in his joy, when we follow his way, which is the way of, watch this church, the way of service and the way of suffering. Yes, there is joy in that, but we, we follow Christ for his sake, the sake of his name. And we find that his joy then becomes our joy. I don't know if I can explain that well, but I think when you experience it, you know it. When you, when you, when you so to speak, stumble across the treasure in the field and you sell everything you have to make sure you buy the field. Others may say, man, you don't have anything to your name. Oh, but I've got Jesus. And for Jesus' sake, man, you, you find there's deep joy in paying whatever price Whatever cost there is to knowing Christ. What did Paul say in Philippians 3? He said, I count everything that I have, humanly speaking, as dung, cattle waste, manure, for the joy of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he said this, and knowing him in the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, I think there's, there's a... There's a joy that comes as we follow Christ all the way to the place of sacrifice. As we follow beyond just the city gates, but all the way to the temple. When we follow in that way, we don't just have our joy, we actually experience his joy. What did Christ tell these very disciples as he was about to leave? He said this, he said, your joy will be full as my word remains in you. So there's a connection between God's word, his purposes, his sake, his name, and our joy. So if we come to Christ for our own joy, 
We come to Christ for, for what we want. If the center of our coming is us, it is a crowd, fanfare, enthusiastic, probably momentary, shallow coming. But when we come for Christ's sake, when we come like a beggar, just asking for sight, and then we see that God gives us life, man, we follow him for his sake. We find his joy becoming our joy. We find that kind of following is enduring. That kind of obedience lasts because it's rooted in him. It's all about Christ. We're not afraid then to embrace suffering, to pay the price, to count the costs. So I think from these two observations and this idea of making sure that we're not presenting this, you know, low lip, sour face, lemon sucking disposition, right? We have to realize there is great joy in following Christ, but it's a joy that comes, watch this, from knowing that, that we're following the footsteps of our master who was not afraid nor backed away from the times of suffering and the price that, would, that he would pay. That cost was involved and he called others to take up their cross and follow him. And so we do that gladly and joyfully, but we do that fully knowing what we're doing. That this is a journey that as we follow Christ could very well have consequences that are difficult and cost to it. And yet, for the joy of knowing Christ, we gladly say yes. So let's merge all this to one simple big idea, can we? How do we contrast these two narratives? What do we see emerging from a study of Bartimaeus as well as the crowd? What, what surfaces as the main thing to take home? It's this right here, that the turning table, excuse me, yeah, the, the table turning nature of true discipleship is that Jesus calls for faithful obedience spiritually when it costs. In other words, he wants you to follow all the way to the temple, not just cheer when he's at the city gates. So true discipleship calls for faithful obedience spiritually when it costs, not fickle applause culturally when it's convenient. And church, I hope you'll hear this with both ears. You're surrounded by cultural, quote-unquote, Christians who think because they attended church at a Christmas service or popped in at Easter or gave some money to a good cause or one day at a VBS filled a card out or perhaps at a youth retreat threw a stick in a fire or perhaps in some service said a prayer, but they've never once thought about it since. There's been no long-term obedience in their life. There's nothing about their life that was, I'm enduring for the sake of Christ. They go back to some nostalgic memory as a way to say, yeah, I'm born again, and they're far from it. They're just cultural, quote-unquote, Christians. They're not truly saved. You're surrounded by folks like that here in God Bless America. You find this politically. You find this culturally. We are often much like the crowd. We want someone to relieve us from our most current stressful situation as opposed to a Savior who says, I will actually save you from your sins. And this morning, I'm just trying to bring to you the true nature of discipleship. That it actually is following Jesus in faithful obedience even when it costs that's when you really begin to know, I belong to God. 
He's empowered me to obey in moments that I would have never chosen naturally. I would have never owned this at that moment. But God's spirit indwells me. He's maturing me. He owns me. He's empowered me. He's going to get me all the way to the end safely home. You realize, I belong to God. I hear his voice, and I know him, and he knows me. And the joy in that supersedes any difficulty, any trial, any cost. Are you in that crowd? Are you that kind of follower? You say, Todd, why are you telling us this today? Why are you kind of putting it on the table pretty clear, you know, like just bam? Why are you raising the stakes so to be? Why are you... Uh, trying to, you know, make sure we're not leaving here, you know, lower lip, sour. But yet, Todd, we're feeling pretty like, uh, man, this is a heavy call today. Why? Because if I don't, then I commit pastoral malpractice. You know that? If I just come to you and say, hey, trust Jesus and it'll all be good. The city gates are the place to stay. Lay down the cloak, sing the songs, clap for Jesus, cheer, be a fan, and leave. If that's all I say to you, I've committed pastoral malpractice because I've left out the part where Jesus said, if any man would come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. And inherent in discipleship is not just the first act of responding, but following holy, even when it's difficult, when the cross is scarring your back and it's causing you to bend over and there's nothing that sees on the surface that's, that's uh, joyful about it circumstantially, but your heart is about to explode because you are following the steps of your suffering servant, Savior. And so you endure. You continue on. You don't give up. You hold tight to your profession of faith, as Hebrews says. You don't shrink back. You're willing to pay the price because you've counted the cost because someone didn't just give you half the medication. So what do you mean, Todd? Just down the road on 35, Kansas City, about 20 or so years ago, um, more than that, a pharmacist began to dispense drugs for his cancer patients, but he was diluting them in order to profit, and he profited in the millions. He did this for 10 years. His name is Robert Courtney. You can look it up. For 10 years, he diluted cancer drugs to what they think could have been as many as 4,200 patients, maybe 98,000 prescriptions. When they discovered what was happening, they arrested him and charged him. Uh, he eventually was technically charged with 34 counts of whatever they call that. I don't know if it's malpractice or some kind of criminal thing. And Out of the 34 counts of diluting prescriptions, 17 of those patients actually died. As I read that, I thought to myself, I don't want to dilute the actual life-saving medication of the gospel to your soul because maybe there's a little fear in me to tell you the whole story. Like, Todd, people don't like it if you tell them there's a price to pay. There's a cost to it. They're not going to like that. But you know what's worse? It lets you in your life thinking, okay, I'm good. I've just got the, I've got the uh, celebrity Jesus. I've got the fanfare faith. And it's not legit. And you stand before God, and he says to you, I don't know you. You'll wish then someone had said, hey, here's the actual whole medication. Here's the whole gospel. That it's the most glorious, joyous thing you'll ever embrace, but it will probably cost you something. It's worth every ounce 
that you could give. And yet what's so ironic is you don't pay for the gospel. It's a gift of grace from God, amen? And yet when this gift of grace blankets you, man, you give up anything for the joy of knowing Christ. Yeah, that, that's why you need to know that the whole pill is both glorious and glorious. And just as Jesus was crucified and brutally murdered, he calls you to follow in his footsteps, 1 Peter. And there will be days of suffering for Jesus' followers. There will be a price to pay, and you are exhorted, you are urged to count the cost because it will not be easy. But I want to tell you this, church. All that, you count, you count up all the suffering that comes from following Christ. You put it in one big pile and put it on the scale. The Bible says that when eternity comes, that will be considered light to the glory that's to be revealed in us. So I encourage you to endure patiently and obey consistently. Trust fervently in Jesus alone. Follow him wholeheartedly. It will be worth it. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.